We're just delighted. It's a, a, a tremendous pleasure for me today to introduce our uh, guest speaker today. Um, uh, pastor John Ordberg no, needs no introduction. Many of you know him. He is senior pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian, one of the prominent uh, leaders in the Silicon Valley, uh, actually in the Christian scene. Uh, he was formerly before that at Willow Creek uh, Church and um, graduated from Wheaton, then did a, had a master's and doctorate from Fuller Seminary where he serves on the board. Uh, but then more than all of his, his accomplishments, he's written a number of books, one of which he's actually going to talk about today, who is this man. Um, what I love about Pastor John is he's a humble man. Uh, he and his wife, Nancy, Nancy now leads a ministry in the Bay Area that you've heard of, of called Transform the Bay for Christ. Uh, they're just down to earth, love serving the Lord. They've got a heart for the kingdom. And in this season, we have really enjoyed uh, getting to know better some of the churches that have had a close affinity and come alongside us to encourage us. You heard last year from uh, PBC, uh, we had Mark Mitchell from CPC, and in that same spirit, we've had a really good uh, friendship and fellowship with um, Pastor John, and uh, part of it just goes two ways. One is it's great for us to renew our uh, ties with uh, churches in the area uh, that can encourage us, but also for us pastors and elders, it allows us to look up to others who uh, have gone with the Lord further and can encourage us and also be in an accountability circle to us as pastors and elders. Um, one of the things that actually for many of you don't know this, but there are three churches in this area over the last 20 years that have been pillars uh, somewhere in the you know, Middlefield Road all the way up to Menlo Park. And one of them is uh, Peninsula Bible Church, the other is Menlo Park Presbyterian, and the third is Abundant Life. And these three churches have served as a triangle. People have gone in between the churches, back and forth, uh, and the amazing thing is that we've had such a great fellowship. So we owe a lot of our early roots to some of the ties uh, with Menlo Park Presbyterian. And with that, uh, I know you will all give a warm, Abundant Life welcome to Pastor John. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, everyone. I'm just hugely honored to be with you this weekend. Thank you so much for letting me come. Uh, I was over at Menlo earlier today and told him to be praying because I was going to be over here. Menlo has uh, been around a long time. It actually got started in 1873 with 13 people. Like nobody plants a church now with 13 people, but it started with 13 people, 1873. By 1920, almost 50 years later, the church had eight members. <laughs> so like that's not real steep church growth. You know, 50 years and you're down five people. And, um, uh, and then, you know, God moved all around the Bay Area and uh, Peninsula Bible Church, this great church. I remember when my predecessor, Menlo, again, Walt Gerber, came there, there was a guy at PBC named Ray Stedman. Some of you will know that name. And Ray had several couples actually leave PBC to go and support this new young pastor, Walt Gerber, at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. And then this church, Abundant Life. I have to tell you, for folks that have been around Menlo for a while, it is a source of so much joy and delight and meaning to have gotten to kind of partner. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have been at Abundant Life for 15 years or more? Okay, I just want you to know, um, for folks at the church where I serve, that sense of connection and partnership and love and, and the notion that 
Menlo, we got to be, in some small way, kind of a part of what God doing is at, at Abundant Life has just been a huge gift. And so I want to say, not just personally, but for the whole congregation that I serve, we are grateful to God for you. I am so grateful for how you have modeled the kingdom and been a beacon of light and hope in the Bay Area and have persevered in challenge and been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So... Thank you for letting me be here with you. I realized I made one big error that no speaker should ever do um, before I got up. I didn't ask how long the sermon is supposed to be upon the life. Because you know different churches have different traditions around that. Church I used to be at in Chicago is about 40 minutes. I got to Menlo Park. When I got to Menlo, sermon I was told, 20 minutes. So we compromised at 35. Um, so I'll just talk and when I'm done, I'm done. Um, that's cool. I want to start by, because we're just going to talk about Jesus today. Start by talking about where it is we live. I live in a, about 30 minutes south of a city called San Francisco. Why is there a city called San Francisco? It's because once there was a man named Francis, Francis of Assisi. And he inspired so much generosity and love. He's led such an unbelievable life that people named cities after him centuries later. And he did this because of another man named Jesus. I live 30 minutes north of San Jose. Why is there a San Jose? Because a long time ago, there was a man named Joseph, whose life was marked by, changed by, a man named Jesus. The capital of our state is Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Because one time a man named Jesus had a meal, the most famous meal in human history, to express the staggering idea that God loves so much that God suffers for the sake of his love. And this meal, which we just celebrated a moment ago, became a holy thing, a sacrament, sacramento. Before that, I lived in Chicago. Why is there a Chicago? No one knows. Just complete mystery. You can't look at a map without being reminded of this man. The impact of his life is so deep that his birth remains the most widely celebrated birth in the world. And like, who's number two? The instrument on which his enemies killed him, a cross, marks more graves and adorns more jewelry, for crying out loud, is the most famous brand, logo, symbol anywhere in the world. And his movement keeps growing, even though those of us who are supposed to be leading it so often do at least as much harm as good. There's a guy by the name of Eugene Peterson. Anybody ever read a Bible called the Message Bible? Eugene Peterson, a great writer and thinker about spiritual life. And he talks about growing up in a Christian home, but being picked on when he was in second grade by a bully named Garrison Johns. And this is what Eugene Peterson, guy who wrote the Bible, writes. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, blessed are those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, but he picked me for his sport. Most afternoons, Garrison Johns would catch me and beat me up. He also found out I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus sissy. I arrived home most afternoons bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians around the world. I'd better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. One day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us and started jabbing me. And that's when it happened. Something snapped. 
For the moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise, and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms with my knees, and he was helpless. At my mercy, it was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. I said to Garrison, this is Eugene Peterson, the guy that wrote the Bible. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. I'm not recommending that as like a model of evangelism, just so there's no ambiguity about this. Don't go out and try that at home. Point is that Jesus' influence endures. We all know about this, sometimes in spite of people who speak against him, who oppose him, and often it endures in spite of those of us that are trying to follow him. A great thinker in the 20th century said these words, guy from Yale University, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? You've got to ask yourself, forget about religion. I don't care what you think about God. I don't care what you think about the idea that Jesus was divine. Forget all that stuff. Just consider him as a person, a real-life human being who was born and lived at a real place and time and eventually died. Look honestly and without prejudice at his life and then the impact that he's had on our world. And you have to ask, who was this man? Now, there's the world that Jesus grew up in, the world that he experienced, and the ancient world was a much darker and harsher place than most people know. There is the world that Jesus saw, and the beauty of his vision of what life could be like, what the human race could be like, simply transformed the human imagination. And then, there is the world that Jesus touched. And guys, here's part of what I'm here to talk about. Most folks simply have no idea of the impact that Jesus has had on our world where we live in almost every sphere of life, just as a matter of history. And I think too often we argue about Christianity instead of just marveling about Jesus. So, and it's okay to say amen, by the way. I, I work at a Presbyterian church. They don't say it much over there. So it kind of, kind of, kind of helps me a little bit. So feel free. Because here's what we're going to do in this talk. We're just going to marvel at Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to do stuff. I'm not going to ask you to say stuff or sign up for anything. We're just, just today going to marvel at Jesus. Would that be okay? Just talk about, in particular, his history in our world. And again, whatever you think about God, you may not consider yourself religious at all. I just want to think, apart from all that stuff, apart from what you think about the Bible, I want people to understand how we live in a world that has been turned upside down just because of that one life. And it's such an amazing thing. And um, most folks don't know about a lot of what we're going to talk about. I have to kind of apologize for it because we're going to walk through a lot of history. And it's going to get dull. It's worth knowing, but it's going to get dull. And every once in a while, I'm just going to pause and ask you, are you with me? Okay? When I ask you that, just say yes. 
Even if you're not, even if you're bored to tears, I'll feel better if you say yes. Okay, are you with me? Because yes. it's all, it's worth knowing because it's about Jesus and what he's done to our world. I want to start by naming the obvious. It would be hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world. I mean, nobody would ever plan somebody like this. Jesus never held an office, never had a title, never led an army, never wrote a book, never traveled all around the world. His followers, unbelievably unimportant people. The New Testament itself, this is the document that talks about him, records two of the primary ones being called unschooled ordinary men. Unschooled, uneducated, not, you know, brightest and the best. And yet 2,000 years later, it is simply impossible to imagine our world if Jesus had not lived. It's just impossible. So we're going to try. That's what we're going to do. Try to think about what would the world be like if Jesus had not been a part of it. There's, there's an old movie I'll think about every once in a while. Probably nobody's here old enough to have seen it called It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, they used to show it at Christmas time. And this character is given the gift of what would the world have been like if he had never lived. What would our world be like if Jesus had never lived? Most folks have never thought about that, don't know what we're going to talk about. So, here we go. Number one, Jesus gave the world its most influential movement, and that is the movement of following Jesus, the church, Christians. So imagine a world with no church, no Notre Dame Cathedral, no St. Paul's, no storefront church in Watts, no house churches in China. I was just over there a couple of months ago. Unbelievable. No Abundant Life or Menlo Park Press or, or Peninsula Bible. No Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no Augustine, no Aquinas, no Origen, no Francis of Assisi, no Mother Teresa, no Martin Luther, no Martin Luther King, no Dietrich Bonhoeffer, no Joan of Arc, no John Milton, John Wesley, John Calvin, John Bunyan, John the Baptist. But let's go back to the beginning, the idea of the church. The idea of the church. Again, most folks don't know this. In the ancient world, there were a lot of different kind of groups. There were nations, like Greece and Rome. There were families. There were ethnic groups. There were guilds. There were tribal religions. There were schools of philosophy. The church was none of those. It was none of those. It was nothing like any one of those. The Apostle Paul wrote, Here, here that is in the church, there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Anybody here ever been or heard of a ride in Disneyland called It's a Small World After All? You ever go on that? That song will drive you crazy by the time you get to the end of that. People of every gender, every nationality, every status, all together, it's a small world. Now think about this. Where before the church was there ever a movement that actually actively sought to include every single human being, apart, apart from ethnicity, no matter what color, no matter what status, no matter what wealth, no matter what language, no matter what gender, high, low, rich, poor, slave, free, black, white, to be included, loved, and transformed. Do you understand? Do you understand? Not only had there never been a community like this before, there had never been the idea of a community like this before. It was his idea. And if you're part of leading the church, it's worth giving the absolute best that you have to it because people desperately need it. There's a book written a couple of years ago by a guy named Putnam called, it's, it's all about community and our need for community. And he cites research where um, 
If you have great health habits, like you eat really good and exercise and don't smoke and get lots of sleep, but you're not in a small group, you're not relationally connected, you are twice as likely to die as somebody who has terrible health habits, but they're relationally connected. In other words, it is better to eat Twinkies with your friends than broccoli alone. Okay? That's why, yeah, some of you came just to hear that. If you make no other change in your life and your health habits, except for one thing, get into a small group when you were not a part of a small group, you cut your odds of dying this next year in half. Amen. That's why at our church, the motto for our small group ministries is, join a small group or die. <laughs> um, and I want to say this too, you know, because Sanjay and I were talking about this last week. Leading the church, being a church, sometimes, you know, you just... The winds of the Spirit are at your back and everything's going easy and, and it just feels really easy and sometimes it's really hard. And at our church, a little over a year ago, we had to go through this real difficult process. We were part of a denomination and, and um, we ended up leaving it to join another one. And, and there were disagreements about that from people who love God and are real smart and they would see things differently. And sometimes somebody would want to do something that I think it's the right thing, but they'd want to do it for what I thought were the wrong reasons. And we had to talk through all this kind of stuff. And, and part of what God spoke to me about that in an era where it was really difficult was I can do one thing. Whatever's going on around me that I can't control, I can always say, God, help me to be my best self. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to say bad things about the group that we've been a part about. I'm not going to focus energy in a way where it gets negative. God's calling us to do something great, to be a part of this mission of Jesus, to include this community of every single... So I'm going to just point towards that, and I'm going to be my best self. I'm going to try to speak the truth. I'm going to be courageous. I'm not going to try to placate. I'm not going to try to appease. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get afraid. I'm, I'm just going to be my best self. And that's when the church is at its best, see? When it calls people to say, in easy days and hard days, we're going to be our best selves. And, you know, part of what Abundant Life has just done that's blessed the valley and blessed the world is just mirror the vision of the kingdom. It's a small world after all. Now, by the way, one other thing on this community movement thing. By the way, uh, a lot of you know about the 12 steps, Alcoholics Anonymous and so on. What a lot of people in our day don't know is the 12 steps actually came directly out of a movement called the Oxford Group, a guy by the name of Frank Buckman, who was a Lutheran pastor trying to recapture the disciplines that Jesus taught his disciples in our day. In other words, no Jesus, no 12 steps. Now, I'm not saying that apart from Jesus, there would never have been an actionable vision of the human race as a single family. I'm just saying, as a matter of historical reality, it began with a poverty-stricken, crucified carpenter. Who was this man? You all still with me? All right. Um, next, Jesus changed how we think about history. Again, most folks don't know about this. In our day, we expect to see progress. We expect life to get better. There's often a survey, think life will be better for the next generation than for the last one. We kind of expect that. Nobody in the ancient world did that survey, see? Most cultures in the ancient world thought of existence in terms of cycles. It's just this endless up-down, up-down, wheel of fortune deal. Events were dated 
by the uh, years of rulers, like year one of Caesar Augustus, year two, and so on. But over time, the power of all those Caesars, their grip on the human imagination began to fade, while another vision grew more compelling. And by the 6th century, this is 600 years after Jesus died, there was this little monk, Scythian monk, and, and he had an idea for a new calendar that was based not on the founding of the Roman Empire, but on the birth of this carpenter named Jesus. Again, most folks don't understand this. The creation of the calendar was not just something to keep track of days. It was a claim. It was a claim. Life is not a random cycle. Life has meaning. It's leading somewhere. And its critical event, its critical event, the dividing line in eras, is the life of this Jewish carpenter. Now, Jesus lived and died, and at the time of his death, Caesar never heard a hint of his existence. Caesar didn't know there was Jesus. But Jesus was called by his disciple John in the first century, within a few decades of him, he was called the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You ever hear that phrase before? A lot of times people just think that is kind of poetry. It's not just poetry. It's a claim. Lord of Lords. Take, take all the kings, all the power brokers, put them all in a group, all the CEOs. Jesus is a king over them. Barack Obama and George Bush and Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush and Donald Trump. Anybody following the Donald Trump story? He's king over Donald Trump. He's the king of kings. Jesus is not, not just a king. See, he's not just the greatest king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now, you've got to understand, in the first century, when these words were first spoken, when he only had a tiny little handful of followers, a claim like that's just laughable. Are you kidding me? This crucified rabbi with, at that time, maybe a few thousand folks that were still following him, king of, of kings? If you were around then and you had to bet on whose influence is going to last longer, Jesus or the Roman Empire, you would not put your money on the carpenter and his motley crew. And yet 2,000 years later, we give our children to this day names like Peter and Paul and Mary, and we give our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. <laughs> 2,000 years after his birth... Every time any human being anywhere on the planet looks at the date, we're reminded daily that Jesus Christ, in fact, became the hinge of history, that Nero died in the year of our Lord, 68, that Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1821, that the tyrant Joseph Stalin died in the year of our Lord, 1953. Maybe Jesus is not Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but how strange that now every ruler who ever reigned Every nation that rises and falls must be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. Who was this man? He, he became the world's most influential teacher. And it's impossible to imagine our life without the teaching of Jesus, without the Sermon on the Mount that became the most famous influential talk ever given, without stories like the story of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son and the lost sheep and the least of these and the golden rule. And to this day, his teaching just changed his life, just doing what he said. I had a phone call from a cranky neighbor not long ago. It was just nasty. You ever get one of those? You just left a nasty voice message. And I just was getting so angry in my spirit. And then I remember remember, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And I thought, well, Jesus, if you want her to get love and kindness back, 
I will have Nancy call her up sometime later on this week. I was, I was at a restaurant. A guy was telling me he does double shifts at this restaurant and someplace else to care for his mom. And I wasn't going to do anything. And then I remember Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And I thought, I can store up some treasure. I, I'm driving on one-on-one. You ever get on one-on-one when the traffic's bad? And there's a guy who's driving on the left shoulder, not a lane, on the shoulder, because we're all bumper to bumper, and he apparently thinks it is his road. And to make it worse, he's in a Maserati. And then he wants to pull in front of me so he can get off at the next exit ramp, and I looked at him, which I shouldn't have done, but I did, and he looked back at me, and then he tapped his watch like I'm getting in his way, and I'm getting so angry at this guy. And then I remember Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. To this day, the teachings of Jesus change the way that people live their lives. Jesus changed how we express compassion. Again, most folks don't know about this. All human beings have a capacity for compassion. Everybody does. But Jesus shaped this in ways that are largely unknown in our day. In the ancient world, in Greece or Rome, it was generally the beautiful, the strong, the wealthy who were admired and looked up to. And the rich might give some money for public works, but it was a way to show I'm great. In fact, historians call it monumentalism. I want to erect a monument to myself. The weak, the marginal, the oppressed, they were not generally valued. A first century Roman writer named Seneca wrote, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. Now you think about that sentence. We drown children at birth when they're weak and abnormal. And now that wasn't controversial. That wasn't considered embarrassing. That's just what looked like the logical thing to do to them. In the ancient world, a child could be left to die if it was the wrong gender. Anybody want to guess what the wrong gender was? It was female. And there were, it thought, about 1.4 million boys for every 1 million girls in the ancient world. The other 400,000 girls were left to die of exposure. And I'll tell you something, in parts of the world that are largely untouched historically by Jesus' movement, you'll still find, maybe not as radically, but that kind of imbalance you'll still find. But these followers of Jesus remembered that they followed a man who said, let the little children come to me. Remember when he said that? And they actually took in abandoned children. And they began the practice of godparents who would care for kids when their folks died and and then orphanages. And these changes became so powerful. One book about them is simply titled, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood and Early Christianity. Widows who were actually fined by the Roman Empire for surviving their husbands, they were kind of a drag on the economy, were taken in and cared for by the church, which remembered Jesus telling John to care for his mother. In the first three centuries, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> in the first three centuries of the church, there were two major epidemics that wiped out uh, up to a third of whole populations. And one ancient writer says it created such a panic in the general population. Look at these words. At the first onset of disease, they pushed the sufferers away, fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But people in this strange little community called the church 
would bring in sick people that they did not know, that weren't family, care for them at the risk of their lives. Because this Jesus they followed cared for lepers and the blind and the deaf and the lame. And in the first century, what was essentially the first hospital was begun by a follower of Jesus named Benedict. By the sixth century, communities, monasteries, would commonly have hospitals attached to them. And over time, this idea that we ought to have compassion on everybody who's weak began to take root. And that something called the Geneva Convention, an organization was begun to alleviate human suffering, and it chose as its symbol a large flag on a cross. Anybody want to guess what color that flag is? Uh, the, the cross, it's a red cross. When you hear of groups like Salvation Army or World Vision or YMCA or Food for the Hungry or Easter Seals, when you go to hospitals called Good Shepherd or Good Samaritan, or St. Anthony's, you see the touch of Jesus. The autistic, or Down syndrome, or disabled, or the mentally ill, or the broken. See, these were regarded in the ancient world as burdens to be discarded. To see them instead as bearers of divine glory that can teach us and ennoble us when we care for them. This is what Jesus saw. Now, this is not to say there would be no compassion in the world without Christianity. And God knows those of us that follow Jesus often far, uh, fall so short. But one writer put it like this. If you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lowly, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. He changed how compassion had. Who is this man? Um, next, Jesus shaped education. You all still with me? Um, human beings have always loved to learn. We all love to learn. But in the ancient world, formal education, most reserved for male children of wealthy parents. And is that water for me? Man, at my church, nobody ever does this. Thank you. I was thinking I was going to have to stop, but man, two bottles? Are you kidding me? Man, I'm good till one o'clock now. Thank you. Um, Jesus movement changed. Can I put this water here? I never know if I'm doing something that like I'll get swallowed up or something. Okay. All right. I won't pour in the goblet or anything, but... Um, People always love to learn. But in the ancient world, you think about this. Now, this is the world that existed that Jesus was born into. If you weren't a male child from parents of the right color and the right amount of wealth, you couldn't learn anything. Illiteracy was vast. But this strange community called the church, remember, they followed a man that taught everybody. And he commanded his followers, go teach everybody. So they started doing that. They would taught... Women and men, slave and free. About the fourth century, they, they started forming these communities, monastic communities. And for many centuries, uh, they not only kept the, the scriptures alive, they were the only places that kept like great pagan literature um, alive. There's a book called How the Iris Saves Civilization, all about followers of Jesus that are the bridge between us and this great learning from the ancient world. And then churches began to build schools. 
And then churches began to build universities. University of Paris, about the 12th century, and then Oxford University, and then Cambridge University. To this day, the motto of Oxford University is, the Lord is my light. Eventually, that's Oxford University. The Lord is my light. And then Harvard. And then Yale. Now you think about this. 92% of all colleges and universities started in the United States before the Civil War were founded in his name. With the Reformation came this idea that every individual, every boy, every girl ought to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And that's what ignited a dream for universal literacy. See, that, was, that was not a dream in the ancient world. People don't know, where did this idea come from? Martin Luther said he was going to write a book about parents that neglect the education of their children because no parents should do this. Here's what Martin Luther wrote. I shall really go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. Luther had a hard time getting his feelings out sometimes. He was kind of a repressed guy. And this is our country, guys. In the United States, back in the colonial days, the first law to require funding for mass education, public funding, was actually called the Old Deluder Satan Act. We don't have snappy names for legislation like that anymore. The Old Deluder Satan Act. And it was passed because they believed that education honors God because it enables people to think God's thoughts after him. And by the way, they believe that everybody that's part of a community ought to gladly pay taxes so that everybody who's part of the community, not just folks that go to private school, could be able to learn to read and write. Those are followers of Jesus. In fact... Another great thinker in the 20th century, a guy named Whitehead, he was asked, what made it possible for science to emerge when it did where it did? How did science get started? And this is what he said. He said it was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God, the idea that creation can be studied because it was made by an orderly, rational God. That's not to say that science would not have arisen otherwise, but the fact is science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history in Europe in the civilization then called Christendom. Most folks don't know this. The greatest explosion of technology in the Middle Ages was in monastic communities of followers of Jesus. Mechanical clocks got invented because monks needed to know when to pray. We first hear about eyeglasses in a sermon because monks needed to pore over texts. Dom Perignon, I'm not making this up, Dom Perignon was actually the name of a Benedictine monk who contributed to the production of champagne because there were no Baptists to tell him it was a sin to drink it. <laughs> the alphabet of the Slavic people, folks that are Slavs, uh, is called Cyrillic. They had no written alphabet, so a missionary named St. Cyril created one for them so they would be able to read the Bible for themselves. In nation after nation, Christian missionaries found languages that had not been committed to writing, so there were no books, no literacy. And in acts of stupendous heroism, often spending their own lives, they set about to that task. In many cases, the first effort at the scientific study of languages was from Christian missionaries. 
dictionaries. They compiled the first dictionaries. They wrote the first grammars. They developed the first alphabets. The first important proper name written in more languages than any other was the name Jesus. The Gospels, the story of his life, have been translated into more than 2,200 languages. No other book has been translated into one-fifth that many. And this man never wrote a book. Who was this man? The Jesus movement revolutionized art. You think about beauty and, and music that we've just been engaged in. Without Jesus, there's no Dante, whose divine comedy shaped modern Italian. There's no Martin Luther, whose German Bible shaped modern German. There's no King James Bible, which, along with Shakespeare, shaped modern English. There's no Johannes Bach, who signed all of his work to the glory of God. No Hallelujah Chorus, no Mozart Requiem, no Gregorian chants. Modern music, like when you see those little notes on a page, those actually got invented by the church so that worship can spread. Imagine no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci's Last Supper, no Justin Bieber Christmas album. There has simply been no transcendent vision of reality, no story of existence that has gripped the artistic imagination like the vision of Jesus. Just who was this guy? The Jesus movement changed political theory. Jesus said to a group of people one day, give the Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give the God what belongs to God. Jesus said one day, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, apart from other things, that's one of the most influential statements in political history. Up until that moment, it was assumed that the state, the country, whatever it was, the ruler, had the franchise on religion. That's part of what held the state, held empires together. So in our day, sometimes you'll hear a phrase, state church, should there be a state church? That phrase didn't exist in the ancient world because there was no thought of anything else. Whoever ran the government, ran the country, of course, ran worship, ran the cult, ran religion. And then Jesus comes, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. There's another kingdom, it's a bigger world. And then people had to wrestle with this. Augustine and Luther and John Locke, they developed this notion of limited government, that even kings will answer to a higher power, that the state shouldn't run religion, that religion shouldn't run the state. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the church generally follows Jesus' work worse when it has a lot of political power, and it's often at its best when it's got no power at all. Jesus changed how we think about human rights and how we think about human dignity and human worth. Our country has this document that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain rights. Where'd that idea come from? We hold these truths to be self-evident. Because that idea was not self-evident, you know, to Caesar, all men are created equal. You often hear people in our day say, I believe in a God of love. You ever hear that? I believe in a God of love. That's an idea. See, that's a claim. Nobody in the ancient world was saying, I, I love Zeus or I love Baal. Do you understand? Jesus brought from Israel to the rest of the world this idea that the God, there's not God, there is one God, the God, and he is a God who wants to be loved. When I was a kid, I used to play a game. Some of you will have played it called Daddy's Home. And about 
5 or 5.30 when I heard the door of our little apartment open up. I knew who it was. And I would go racing across the room and running down the steps. And went, Daddy's home. Daddy's home. And take a flying leap because I knew those arms would be stretched out to grab me. I loved doing that until the day that my mom, my dad couldn't bring himself to do it. My mom said, you have to stop playing that game. And I said, why? She said, well, it's not because he doesn't love you because he always will. And it's not because he won't be there for you because he'll always be there for you. It's just you're 37 years old. <laughs> Sooner or later, every human arm gets a little flabby and a little weak and so. Jesus would tell these stories, you know, about how God's like a father who's just racked by tormented love for his most rebellious, wayward, wicked son. He's just waiting for him to come home. And some of you know that. Some of you have been that son, been that daughter. Some of you are in a far country right now. You need to come home. And this claim that God is a God who has love for every human being has got serious implications. So it's written, Now there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. One historian writes, This is the first expression of egalitarianism, of the equality of every human being in human history. Now you all know, supposedly Christian individuals, supposedly Christian nations violate this. I was at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston a couple of months ago, the, the Sunday after that shooting happened, and the pain over human ugliness and the refusal to recognize the worth of every human being is unbelievable, and it is rampant in our day. But the power of Jesus' teaching has a subversive way of refusing to stay submerged, and that's why reform movements like abolition and civil rights and rights for women and so were overwhelmingly initially led by followers of Jesus. Jesus uniquely taught love for enemies. And the idea that you're to love your enemy is not a natural idea. What was admired in the ancient world was helping your friends and harming your enemy. And we all know what that feels like. There was an article in the LA Times quite a while ago. A guy named Dave Hagler was stopped by officer of the law, given a speeding ticket, did everything he could to say, you know, I'm normally a very careful driver. i got a really important event. I'm late for it. i got to be there. And uh, the guy who wrote in the ticket said, tell it to the judge. There's no sympathy at all. Some months later, Hagler was an umpire in a slow-pitch softball league, and so he's umpiring. And the first batter to come up to bat is the guy who drove the police car and gave him the ticket. And they recognized each other, and he said rather nervously to Hagler, how did the thing with the ticket go? And Hagler said, you'd better swing at everything. <laughs> See, that long, and I want to get even, I want to get revenge, you know what that feels like. In the ancient world, that was admired. See, Nobody admired the idea of loving your enemy. But there was once a man who said, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, bless those who persecute you. Those were not just words. And as he died, he said about those who were executing him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And his followers remembered this. And they were executed because of their faith in Jesus. And we're told by one ancient writer, now you think about this. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were torn by dogs and perished or nailed to crosses or doomed to the flames. Nero would take followers of Jesus 
and cover them with pitch and use them as human torches to light gladiator games. And this went on and off, on, off and on for three centuries, and their response was not to dream of revenge or start an armed revolt, but to love. The unique association of Jesus with love for enemies is so strong that historian Hannah Arndt wrote, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. She's not even Christian. That's what she wrote. Who is this man? He inspired a man named Tolstoy. Tolstoy's book, Re uh, Resurrection, inspired a lawyer by the name of Gandhi to begin a community devoted to reconciliation. The last words Tolstoy wrote outside to his family were to Gandhi to praise the self-sacrificing love of this carpenter Jesus. In the most famous speech of the 20th century, Martin Luther King Jr. departed from his script to quote the prophet. Fascinating. If you ever look at this online, you can see when he goes off script. To quote the prophet to say, justice is going to roll like waters, righteousness like a mighty stream, and the crowd crowd could not keep quiet when he said that. Tell it, they said, amen, like a church crowd. Not like this crowd, apparently, but like some church crowds. Kind of answer you back. And, and King couldn't go back to his script. So Mahalia Jackson, great singer, pipes up out of, out of the crowd. Tell him about the dream, Martin. And he started to preach, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day my little children will be judged not by the color of their skin but the content of their character and, and, and little black children and white children will, uh, this is not his dream this is shalom this is, this is God's dream it was inspired by the one that Martin Luther King followed by the one whose gospel Martin Luther King preached by the Jesus whose name and life draw us here today because the real question is not who was this man the real question is who is this man? Amen. Who is Jesus? He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher that ever lived. He is the greatest mind that ever thought. He offered the greatest gift ever given. He launched the greatest movement ever known. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with every passing year. He is the Son of God and the glory of humankind. The crucified carpenter of Nazareth is the hope of the nations and the Savior of the world. And that's who this man is.